Once again, we go through the book of Leviticus. Not every bit of it, but parts of it. And again, we need to be patient to understand that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and all of it is profitable. But sometimes it's hard to understand. So we'll do the best we can to listen to God's Word. And we're looking at Leviticus chapter 5. This is the guilt offering. You can see it in some of your versions. The laws for guilt offering. You might have trouble remembering all these. The burnt offering, the sin offering, peace offering, guilt offering. They seem to be sort of similar, but there's some important differences here that tells us what does sin cost. So the guilt offering begins in verse 14 of Leviticus chapter 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of the things that the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned, and he realizes his guilt, and he will restore what he took by robbery or what he has gotten by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt." And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. This is God's word made blessed to our hearts, shall we pray. Lord, again, thank you for this word which does help us to understand the seriousness of sin and what sin costs. And bless us as we consider it tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you three illustrations and see if you can relate to any of them and see what they have in common. An old movie back in the 80s was called Back to the Future. And in it, Marty McFly had to go back in time because he messed up his parents' marriage it turns out. All this, of course, is not possible. But he had to fix that which he had broken and reestablish their relationship. It's all very silly. But then there's another famous movie, A Wonderful Life, in which an angel has to convince this man who is very distraught over his life that he has done a lot of good things and he should remember that and he should try to live better 
from here on out. An even older story is called A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And here we have Ebenezer Scrooge, who's very mean and selfish and likes to keep all his money for himself, who has three angels appear to him. He has the messenger from the past that shows all the terrible things he has done, the messenger from the present, which shows the result in the Bob Cratchit family with little tiny Tim and how poor they are. And then he has the picture of the future and what will happen to him if he doesn't realize and try to fix the things that he has done. Well, this all has to do with fixing things that you have messed up. Somehow or other, you have failed or violated the law or a word of God in a case of scripture here, or something that you have done to offend somebody else. And the problem is, how do you fix that sort of thing? You can't go back to the past and undo it. Well, here we have an example of what we call the guilt offering, which helps us in part to fix things that we have done in the past. A famous one, of course, is David and Bathsheba. I referred to that recently, where David had to be convinced of his sin, and he had to say, I have sinned against the Lord. How can he go back and fix it? And the answer is, he can't. He can't undo his adultery. He can't undo his setting Uriah the, uh, up to fail and to be killed in battle. And we realize that our lives are full of sorrows and failures from beginning to end. We find that even this very tough passage of Scripture has a purpose in teaching us how bad sin is and how we can seek to repay those we have offended, whether it be God or whether it be others, particularly of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me ask you a question in the, under this first point. What do we owe God? What does God own? What part of the universe does he own? Well, I know you know the answer. He owns it all. All right? What part of your life does he own? Well, he owns it all. What part of the things that you have has he given to you? This is getting obvious. Everything you have, he's given to you. So what do you owe God? Well, you really owe God everything. But God has set up certain things that remind us of how much God has given us. And he's given us what the Bible here calls holy things. And in reference to other scriptures, we find out some examples. A tithe, a first fruit offering, and doing the kind of sacrifices that God requires in our lives. For example, the tithe. You know, a tithe means one-tenth. And the scripture in the Old Testament has us bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Otherwise, Malachi says, you have robbed God. How can you rob God if he owns everything? Because you have not admitted that God gave it to you to begin with. And by not bringing the tithe as an offering to God, you're saying, I deserve all this. I don't need to thank you for what I have. I've gotten it all myself. Well, that, of course, is not true. And in that way, you are robbing God. You're stealing from him the glory due to his name. And you're failing to thank him for what he has done. We find that there are also things like sacrifices. And sacrifices are to be given to God. And in this case, if you steal from God or you do something else that is taking away from God's glory, you are going to have to make a sacrifice, as you've seen many times in these other sacrifices. I'm trying to simplify here. This sacrifice is a ram. Now, is a ram 
big or small. Some of you may not know what a ram is, but compared to a sheep or a goat, it's big and it's expensive. So if you do something against God, you owe him your very life, but instead he's going to accept this sacrifice, which is a ram without blemish, that's supposed to be not cheap, but it's supposed to be offered in the temple as a sacrifice. But when you do that, you also add a fifth or 20% to what you have not paid to God, whatever it might be. Let's say the tithe. Let's say you withheld 10%. Now you're going to add another 20% to that. And then you see that you've actually owed God some things that you should have paid to him. And that we call the tithe. But the sacrifice says, God, I'm sorry. I have taken something that you should have had from me. And not only that, but I want to make up for it by adding to it more, more that I didn't take, but I'm still going to count that as something that I owe to you. So that's what they did in those days. Now, the only thing I can think of that's similar to today is if you don't pay your credit card debt. Those of you who don't have credit cards, relax. But most of us have had credit cards, and children, be careful with these, okay? But if you do not pay your credit card, they extort 20% minimum, 24%, 30%, a whole bunch of extra money just because they didn't get their money back. Now, you signed that when you got the credit card. You might not have read the small print, but that's the same idea. By not paying something back, you are also keeping it so they can't even have it anymore until you give it back. So we call that a payment of interest. Here it's 20%, interestingly enough. And so what we have is in the scriptures, we owe God everything. But we have often failed to owe God, to pay to God what we owe, whatever it might be, whether it be worship or whether it be tithe or whether it be offerings or ignoring God or not failing to, or failing to love him as we ought. In the New Testament, you might ignore your baptism and not care about the sign that was given to you. You might not partake of the Lord's Supper when you're able to. And in so doing, you would be neglecting what God has given you. You, go, you have to go to the Lord when you realize what you have done. You need to go and ask him for forgiveness. Now, the one, most wonderful words in this entire passage, and the clearest, are these. If you do these things, it says, you will be forgiven. Credit card company is not going to understand. The credit card company will continue to demand the payments for you until you paid the last farthing. But the Lord is willing to forgive us of our sins, even sins covered up by a lie. And you can make them right again by coming to God and asking for forgiveness in this way in the Old Testament. We find in a second example, what if God, if you have done some other things that are wrong, and this is verse 17 and following, any of the Lord's commandments that you should have done, but you didn't do. Now, here we have an example of sins that we can't count. Can you imagine all the sins that you have committed to God, against God, either by doing something you shouldn't do or not doing what you should in any of the commandments of God. I know somebody's counted the commandments of God in the Bible. I can't remember the number, but there's hundreds of them. And you realize that if you have even committed one sin, you're guilty of breaking the whole law, James says. All these commandments 
are given us that we might show him our love. But when we fail to love him, because you're careless, you're showing that you don't love him as you ought to love him. And you are certainly guilty. When you rob God of his glory or the obedience that we owe him, it's as if we owe him a debt. And the question is, how can we repay this kind of debt? We think of the Apostle Paul, who counted himself to be the chief of sinners. He arrested Christians. He had them put to death. If he had not been stopped, it's possible that he could have destroyed the church. That was his goal. He didn't. God stopped him. But he realized that he was the chief of sinners. And he spent the rest of his life telling people how sinful he was and seeking to tell people how to escape the wrath of God for sin. Sin is so great that Psalm 38 says, My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. We cannot count our sins should we try to do so. And our sin is much worse than we think. It costs us much more than we think. And we realize, how are we ever going to pay back this incredible debt that we owe to God? The sacrifice was just an example of how you know that you had done that which was wrong. In the Old Testament, you had to maintain your conscience. You had to think, do I, know, do I owe another ram to God? I don't know how they managed it. I don't know how they managed to bring all the sacrifices that they were commanded to do. Do you know of something that you should confess to God and you have not confessed? In Matthew 18, we're told if we bring an offering and we remember that our brother has something against us, we should go to that brother and make it right. And then we come to God and then we worship him. So we've got to try to maintain our consciences by remembering what we have done, confessing our sins, making it right with our brother. The problem is there are so many sins, aren't there? If you should try to count them, they are greater than the hairs on your head. Consider all of your emotions and your attitude and your conscience and the things that you have made into idols. I have one illustration from my own family. I had a brother, Doug, who passed away by accident at age 42, And he and I were both raised in Philadelphia area. And because of that, we were Phillies fans. And my family for generations had been Phillies fans. And my brother was a very passionate person, and I rooted for the Phillies, but he was, oh, when they lost, I don't know what he would have done to himself. I mean, he would just, he was angry, he was mad, he couldn't take it, he would run around the block, he would fall on the floor. I mean, he was pretty bad. Until one day he realized, wait a minute, this is just a game. Really. <laughs> it's just a game. It doesn't really matter. And he could have said, well, I'll just try to do better and not be such a nutcase about it. But instead he did something I'm not sure I would have done or could have done, but he did this. He says, I'm going to stop being a fan of any sports team at all. I don't know if you can handle that or not. You know, roll tide, then suddenly not roll tide. I don't know how you're going to do that exactly. But then I realized that he was so committed to not putting anything in front of God that he was willing to do that. From then on, if he watched a ball game, could have been a ball game, could have been a baseball game, he would say, that was a good play, even if it was by the other team. And he wouldn't root at all. I could hardly believe he was my brother, really. 
I'm going, you know what? He was so committed to God's glory that he didn't want anything to get anywhere near to being an idol. I wonder if there are other things like that in our own lives that we have allowed to become more important than God. We know the first and great commandment is that we shall love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbor as ourselves. How often have we not loved God as we ought? How often have we stolen from God, taken from him his, his glory, let us say? We realize that by these sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were showing that they were sorry for their sin. It was an act of repentance. But not only that, if you did not give God his tithe or his glory, if you committed any sin against any of his commandments, you would bring this guilt offering time and again. But not only that, what if you sinned against one another? Chapter 6 says, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security. Now this one is a tough one because we, don't, we can't really relate to this exactly. But in those days, if you went on a trip, who was going to watch your prize bull? let us say. You might say, here, neighbor, keep this prize bull for me and give it to me when I get back because somebody might steal it. Well, suppose you have a prize bull from your neighbor and you decide, wow, I can get a lot of money for this bull. And you decide to sell it. And before your friend comes back, you break open the fence and you say to him, oh, I hate to tell you, your prize bull broke out. I have no idea where it is. It's so somewhere on the hills, somewhere in a valley. It might be dead by now. I don't know. What have you done? You've stolen from your neighbor, and you've lied to him about it because you want the money for the property that belonged to him. This is what it means by deceiving about a deposit that was entrusted to you. So you might deceive by telling a lie about what was given to you. You might, dis- you might have robbed your neighbor. You might come across a cache. Now, what I mean by cache is C-A-C-H-E. That's a hole in the ground because in those days they didn't have banks, right? If you wanted to keep something safe, people still do it today. You dig a hole in your backyard, you cover it up. Nobody knows it's there, right? What if you stumble across a hole in the ground that you find out was was dug by your neighbor, and you take the stuff that was in there, obviously, clearly, against the law of God and against your neighbor. You have stolen what does not belong to you. You have then maybe even lied about it and said, I don't know what happened, but somebody must have dug in your backyard and found your treasure. Who knows who that could have been? And you lie about that. This is the same idea. You're so greedy, you will lie, you will steal, you will cheat. Of course, this is very similar to what happens today all the time. And so the same thing is true about God's possession. Everything belongs to God, and what belongs to our neighbor belongs to our neighbor. So we could easily take things that don't belong to us. It all falls into the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Still, we owe God more than that. We owe everything to God. And therefore, we must recognize that how could we ever repay God for how we have sinned against him? First John says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another 
just as he has commanded us. We've got to ask God for forgiveness. We go and ask God for forgiveness. And if we've stolen from our neighbor, what else should we do? Ask our neighbor to forgive us and give the stuff back. This is the idea of returning that which you have stolen from either God or from your neighbor, confessing your sin and admitting that you were wrong. Now, interestingly enough, this 20% is a bare minimum. If somebody had to take you to court, if your neighbor thinks, you know what, you stole a bunch of stuff, but I'm going to prove in court that was, that was you that did that, you would have to pay back twice what you stole, or in the case of sheep, four times what you stole, or in the case of oxen, five times what you stole. If you have to go to court, you pay that much, what's the best thing to do? Turn yourself in. You sometimes hear about this, some criminals in the run, and the police broadcast, all right, if you have done this crime, we urge you to turn yourself in, or it will go worse for you in the court. And of course, it would. And so our idea that is that if we know our sin, we come to know our sin, we turn ourselves in, and we also ask for mercy. Sometimes you see someone say, I cast myself on the mercy of the court, meaning, oh, judge, please forgive me. I have done terrible things, and the judge might have mercy on you. This, of course, is the parable that we read a little while ago from Matthew chapter 18, where the guy owed 10,000 talents, which I forget is some huge amount of money, millions of dollars, and, and he says, please forgive me, and I will try to pay you back. And the guy whose money it was, he says, I do forgive you. You do not have to pay me back at all. I forgive you 10,000 talents. Remember that parable? And then as soon as the guy leaves, he finds somebody that owes him 10 bucks. And he says, give me 10 bucks. And the guy says, I don't have it. Be patient with me. And the guy says, no, I'm going to throw you in jail until you pay every last farthing. And the other servants, remember, tell on him and say, you know what happened to that servant you forgave all that money from? He went and demanded a few bucks from a guy that owed him money. And the master says, let me see that servant. You did not forgive when I forgave you all of this debt. Therefore, you will be cast into prison until you pay the last farthing. In other words, God forgives us when we come to him. And when he forgives us, we learn how to forgive one another. How important is that with brothers and sisters in your home? Somebody sins against you. Somebody starts a fight. And you always say, he started it. Well, you continued it. And you've got to ask for forgiveness from each other and be reconciled. And we always have the parents say, not just I'm sorry, but please forgive me for what I have done. And because you belong to the Lord, you will remember how much God has forgiven you. And you will forgive one another. So pay what you owe to one another. Romans says it in Romans 12. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Forgiveness means we also must forgive others. And forgive us, we say, our debts in the Lord's Prayer as what? As we forgive our debtors, meaning those to whom we owe money or whatever it is, or they owe us money, we should forgive them. Forgive us our debts as we forgive one another. 
I like reading the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Remember the song? But Zacchaeus wasn't just a wee little man. He was a professional robber. He stole money that wasn't his in the name of Rome because what was his job? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. The Romans hired Jews to take taxes from their own people. And then the Romans said, if you take anything extra, we won't worry about it. So not only were there very high taxes in Rome, but then the guy would say, well, if you don't pay me right now, you're going to owe twice as much. And therefore, here's somebody requiring that you pay something you don't actually owe. And Zacchaeus came to trust in Jesus. Remember? I'm going to your house today. Remember that? I'm going to your house today. And then he realized he had sinned against the Lord. And he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've taken anything from anybody, I restore it fourfold. He did a large amount of extra payment because he knew how bad his stealing was. And Jesus said of Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. How is he a son of Abraham? Because he confessed his sin, right? The Son of Man, he says, came came to seek and to save that which is lost. Should not we thank God for all the things for which he has forgiven us, for our sins that are higher than our heads, from the way in which we have not loved one another? We've taken things that have not belonged to us. Maybe we haven't even gone to the person and given it back. We need to do that if possible. But realize children and adults, how many sins you have against God. Adults, how many hearts have you broken? How many people have you been cruel to? Have you insulted? Have you neglected? Husbands and wives, how often have you sinned against each other? Through cruelty or neglect or lack of love or failure to be considerate of one another through insensitivity or selfish or critical spirits. Ask your wife, ask your husband. She'll tell you, he'll tell you. And then you'll have to forgive one another. I've done so many premarital counselings and I tell them, look, get ready to have to confess your sins. Because if you live together with somebody, pretty soon you find out, what? My spouse is a sinner. Who knew? (laughs) Suddenly my husband is sitting against me and I'm sitting against him and I thought we were Christians. Well, yes, of course, but you still offend one another. You have to take it seriously. Don't go to bed angry. Tell your husband or wife what's bothering you. Make it right. Ask for forgiveness and know that Jesus Christ has died for you so that when you offend, not if you offend one another, I always tell these couples, you are going to sin against each other. I'm not saying you ought to, but you're going to. When you do that, you have to confess it. You have to ask that husband or wife to forgive you. Now we realize, how can we forgive one another? But if Christ has forgiven us, how can we not forgive one another? Jesus Christ is, in fact, the guilt offering. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Jesus paid it all. We're going to sing that the right hymn tonight. Jesus paid it all. He's the one that paid for every bit of that which we owe to others, much of which we haven't ever repaid. And who could repay God for all the things that that we've done against him? 
God has sent his son to pay the price for sin. All of our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we deserved eternal enslavement in hell. Jesus Christ paid the price. When we try to make up for our sins by the wooden nickels of our restitution, things that we really can't make up for, God in Christ has paid it all. Behold the Lamb of God, mocked, stripped naked, dragged to the cross, nailed to the cross, abandoned. And then he finally says some of the most precious words in all of the Bible, it is finished. Finally. The payment has been made. All of those rams we didn't offer, all of those sins we didn't confess properly, all those things we didn't even know about that we sinned against one another, Jesus paid the last farthing instead of us. We owe infinite debt, but Jesus paid it all, but only for repentant sinners who confess their sins to God. This is what these ram offerings are all about. This is how much I've offended and more. We don't bring the rams. But we come to God and say, this is how I have sinned against you. And more. Who has known the height and depth of his transgression, the guilt and horror of its consequences? It took a tragedy of immense proportions, even the death of Christ, to avert sorrow for us of unimaginable and eternal duration, namely eternal condemnation forever. That's what sin deserves. But it cost Jesus instead. Jesus paid it all. Paul was the chief of sinners for a good reason, because he admitted to trying to destroy the church. How many has he killed? How can he unkill them? He looked to God and confessed his sins, and Jesus paid for those sins. And he could hardly believe it, but it's true. Jesus Christ redeemed you from the pit. He did what you could not do. He could make up for what you couldn't make up for. He did things that are unimaginable as far as his pain and sorrow and suffering because you didn't want to bother admitting that you were a sinner. Christ took the blow for our sin and the guilt of of these consequences. Christ pays for everything. He pays for the restitution. He pays for the restoration. He pays for the reconciliation. He pays to wipe that debt completely off your record. No matter what you have done, you have a perfect record in the eyes of God. And you didn't even bring a ram because the Lamb of God took away your sins. How can you not seek to serve God more and more? How can you not forgive your brother or sister if they sin against you and you don't want to forgive them. Sorry, you don't have a choice. And you might have to do it more than once, as Jesus reminded his disciples. What does sin cost? It costs the Savior an equivalent of eternal condemnation. But your death was necessary, or Christ's was necessary on your behalf. Which will it be? Will you die in your own sin? Or will you cling to Christ that he might be your guilt offering, that he might plead his blood before the throne of grace, and finally you will be free? Shall we pray?
O Lord God, we don't know what sorrow and pain we cannot understand, we cannot imagine that which he bore for us. But we know that it is more than we could possibly imagine, and you have indeed paid it all. Help us to understand this to the degree that we can and be more and more grateful to you for what you have done for us at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.